Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with some of the most interesting voices in the sport. Speaking of interesting voices, we've got a great show for you today. Trey Walke has had an illustrious life in and around tennis. He was number 41 in the world, beat Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe in the same year, partied with Vitas Gerolaitis and Bjorn Borg, and was in the center of the tennis world when it was developing from classic to modern. He runs the Malibu Racquet Club, and he helped build Reebok into a massive tennis brand. We're going to find out what Larry Ellison's plans are for Malibu Racquet, what it's like to go to Studio 54 with Vitas, and what happens when you're more fashionable than Stan Smith at Wimbledon. We caught up with Trey in West Hollywood, California. We're here at Genghis Cohen on Fairfax Avenue in uh, West Hollywood. Um, it's a Chinese restaurant. Trey Walkie took some time to join us here. How's it going, my man? Very well, Craig. Thanks for having me today. You're the first person we've spoken to from the generation that the way I kind of describe it is is like you guys made a lot less money and had a lot more fun. Was okay. that fair to say? It's very it's, it's very fair to say, yes. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I don't know what kind of fun they're having now, but but we had a lot of fun. This is unusual. It's a rainy day here in L.A., and um, anytime the sun's not shining, it's kind of strange. So I actually like these kind of days. That's a great it's day. Nice. Yeah. It's a great day to do this, actually. So in order to keep things moving and cover a wide variety of subjects, we've been implementing a best-of-five format. This is our first segment. We call it the Off the Court Report, and I want to talk about the club. Malibu Racket is a private club. You have to join to play there, but there is a public restaurant. It's the epicenter of tennis in Malibu, which is a great tennis town. Every now and then, you'll see John McEnroe playing with Chucky Adams. You'll see Ashley Harkleroad there. You know, Trey practices a few times a week with some different members of the club. I mean, that's always a treat. And somehow they set the club up where you see the ocean. Yeah, it's like has a, you know, the, the um, courts are tiered. So with each higher tier, you see more of the ocean. It's, it's really a you know, spectacular view. The restaurant. Uh, well, you know, the restaurant just got voted best new restaurant in Malibu. I've had an incredible pozole there. Pozole. <laughs> you have? Yeah, the pozole. I haven't had that. Yeah, yeah, the hot, spicy, delicious soup. And you guys serve La Colombe coffee, which is our favorite from... We uh, love that, La Colombe, yeah. Well, you have a coffee background, isn't that right? I do. Uh, I, uh, I had a 10-store uh, chain of espresso bars back in the early 90s. I think we'll talk a little bit more about coffee later. Um, Trey makes a tremendous espresso, by the way. Malibu Racket is where we met, and um, Trey, run, you run that club. I'm a GM over there, yeah. I like to say that I'm sort of the captain that steers the ship. You know, I've got Eric and Hollis, who pretty much run things day to day but I sort of guide the ship for Larry Ellison. Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle, has bought up giant swaths of Malibu, uh, including Malibu Racquet Club. He has a big, big role in tennis as the owner of the BNP Paribas Classic in Indian Wells. And Oracle now is taking even bigger role in tennis. Yeah, as, you know, as a matter of fact, Oracle is trying to become sort of the leader, I guess, in college tennis. Just recently, you'd had that ITA Masters. Um, that's an incredible event. Yeah, we love that tournament. I mean, it, it's it, you know, it's the top top 32. Men and women college, right? From all of college, yes. And uh, the matches are fantastic. Larry comes out to watch it. Mark Hurd from Oracle, who's the, who's the CEO over there. Uh, comes out and um, it's a great event. We love it. Tracy Austin's floated around. Her Tracy, kid won it. That's right. 
That's right. Brandon won it uh, last year. Brandon Holt, uh, the son of Tracy Austin, I think plays one at USC. He played one as a freshman. He's probably a sophomore now. I think he won a pro tournament recently. I think he did too, yeah. That's why he didn't play the tournament this year. And because of Larry, there's some big expansions happening at Malibu Racket? Yeah, you know, uh, he bought the property next to the Malibu Racket Club. So it's the same, same square footage. And uh, if the city allows us, eventually we're going to have another three courts over there, a much bigger clubhouse, a pool, a big gym. That'll uh, be a destination. That'll be a destination for sure. And, and it'll be linked with the current club. And if we're lucky, he'll get the property on the other side of the club too, which is a huge piece of property that Pepperdine owns. And then we can really expand and do something, something fantastic. And that becomes what? Uh, well, that becomes well, like a tennis academy. Probably a tennis, you know, sort of a combo tennis academy, uh, uh, training center for, for other sports as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that would be unbelievable. Be. Malibu is one of the most amazing places in the world. I mean, they, they should have a high-performance athletic facility. Yeah, you would think so, for yeah. sure. You know, I mean, I, I, I think that there's so many people who are so sporty out there in Malibu that there should be a lot of that in, uh, out there. You know, Laird Hamilton is training right. Yannick Noah's kid there right now. Right. Uh, you know, John McEnroe is riding bicycles and playing tennis right in the neighborhood. It's pretty yeah. amazing. Moving into our second set, this is the On The Court Report where we talk about what's happening now on the tour. But before we get into it, I want to give a little perspective on you and your career. Trey, through the sort of the mid-70s through part of the 80s, was considered uh, a real deal player. He had big wins over McEnroe and, and Connors and played every single person in tennis. How would you describe yourself to someone that never saw you play? I would probably say that I was a dangerous floater in the draw. My feeling was if I could somehow get on autopilot and get hot, I could play with anybody. I wasn't blowing guys off with my serve. Um, so I had to figure out a way to win points fairly quickly if I could, so I wasn't tired for the, like the next two or three rounds. So a lot of times I would win the first or second round against a top player, but I just couldn't seem to hold it, you know physically. So I could lose to anyone and I could beat anybody. So somewhere in there was my ranking at its best at around 41 in the world. So what are your impressions of this year in pro tennis? I guess we could start with the women. Did anything or anyone stand out in an interesting way? Um, I'm, I'm personally a Halep fan. I, I, I like how she plays. Obviously, she's not tall, I'm not tall. So I like when someone works the point, thinks, thinks through their matches. And uh, I like, I really enjoy watching her play a lot. And talking with other people, they said that Darren Cahill did an incredible job. I with think her. he is too. I've seen them together, and there's, a, you know, there's like a real connection I think between those two. I think he probably gets her just in the right frame of mind. I think that's what that's what a good coach does. Is that he coaches according to what the player is like mentally. Can you explain what kind of effort that is to be one in the world, particularly at that size? Well, no, I can't explain that. But you know, I mean, I've had a couple of victories over people who were who were one in the world, and I mean, if you you have to keep up that kind of level every day and every week and every month of the year. That's that's such a grind. Really, is tough. Well, and, that, and there's no easy points anymore. Never, no, there's not. Every every point's a grind, you know. Unless you're one of the biggest guy servers, it's a grind. Yeah. Even now, those balls are coming back. Somehow, they've slowed down the surfaces in a way that... Yeah, I think they have a little bit, but, but Isner still, you can't get the serve back half the time. Well, he, and he can't break serve. He can't, he can't break either. And he can't break. That's right. 
It's unbelievable. Um, did any other women stand out? Did you watch Osaka this year at Indian Wells? Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, you know what's funny is that I saw Osaka play at Indian Wells, and I thought, I thought, you know what? I'm not, I'm not sold yet on on Osaka. You know, I just, I just wasn't. I thought that she got hot. Um, but I wasn't sure mentally if she was ready to you know, ready to go every single week. I mean, everyone is very enamored with her at the moment, but I mean, she speaks and sounds like a five-year-old. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, she does. Uh, I, I don't know if she needs some media training there, or if she needs maturity, or well, maybe she's sort of blissfully unaware of the big picture. I I don't know that, but but, but maybe sort of the tennis court is kind of her her little sanctuary of sanity there, and and I think that maybe she does that. D d does the lack of variety in stroke production and point construction sort of frustrate you? I mean, our listeners probably couldn't know this, but, you know, Trey is blessed with, like, a beautiful array of strokes. He's just got a very smooth, smooth style. <laughs> You're uh, very kind. Thank you. you uh, Thanks. You hit a heavy, flat-ish forehand, and his backhand is sort of flat, but you can knife it, and you can roll it when you want and uh he's got these soft hands and and it's a special sort of game so the way we see people hitting balls now there's not a lot of variety and, and feel does that sort of annoy you you know a little bit because i don't think that the that the players are forced to learn the whole craft of the game i think that they can get get really good at doing forehands and backhands and you can and you can make a decent living just bang them but I don't think that the nuance of playing in the midcourt, of creeping in, of, of, of how do you cover the net, uh, you know, how far back do you play, how close do you play, all those kind of things, which we had to do because there wasn't as much power. So, I mean, I like watching tennis now, but it just doesn't have that creativity that I used to enjoy. What are your takeaways from the, the year in men's tennis? I, well, you know, for me, I'm waiting for the whole new crop to take over. I love them all, but it's like we've had them now for 20 years, and I'm ready for the next crew. There's a lot of new kids coming up. Some of them I really like to watch play. For example, I love this kid from Australia, Alex, Alex Demonar. You like Demonar? I, like, I do. I like him because I think he's sort of a better-serving Leighton Hewitt, and he's also a problem solver, which I like. And he's a great competitor. He's got the Aussie code of, of give it everything and no excuses. He seems like a respectful young kid who's just doing the work. Yeah. Is there anyone else on the men's side that you think is interesting? I will watch this guy, Diego Schwartzman, every time he plays because he's my size and the guy, he's great. He's a great player. He's got heat. He's got strength. Hits the ball hard. He's smart. I mean, he's, Diego Schwartzman, he's the, great the Argentine. It's hard to believe. Yeah, it is. In 2018, a guy five foot seven. Yeah, can play with 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 these guys. Yeah, he seems to do well against the Isners of the world too. He seems to read their serves quite quite well. I I just think it's difficult, but he's so rock solid, and he's got such a great a great game and. Uh, I love watching him play. Anyone else um, that sort yeah, of Yeah, I mean, I liked, I liked this kid, uh, uh, I can't even say his name, Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas, Yes, sure. obviously he's, he's gonna be one of the top, top 10 guys. What do you like about what, do you like about what you've seen from him? You know, I, I, I like that he doesn't seem sort of fearful of winning a big match. You know, he, he believes it, and it looks like he believes it, and uh, I think the other, the other players feel that from him. You know, like the locker room 
is different from, from the actual match. And sometimes if you have that swagger in the locker room, which, which, which I bet he does now, that it wins you some more matches and he's got it. All right, moving on to our third set. Generally speaking, this is the, the block in the show where we talk about the player's career. Um, somehow you, you land in a place in tennis where there is a lot written about the top three guys and not a lot written about a lot of the other guys. And I know that you came up in St. Louis, is that right? I did, I grew up in St. Louis. I started there when I was six years old. I was told that St. Louis was some kind of hotbed of tennis, is well, that right? Well, back in the 60s and, and, and pretty much early 70s, we had, after Los Angeles, probably the second best tennis city in the country. We had, for example, Chuck McKinley, who won Wimbledon in 62. Butch Buckholz, who was in top five in the pros. Butch Buckholz is a major person in tennis. Um, he was a tournament owner, or maybe still, I don't even know. I don't think he owns the tournament anymore, no, he but doesn't. He was, but he was he a started, very... He started the Miami tournament. Yeah, I mean, listen, Butch, Butch won, he won the Junior Grand Slam. He was at least five in the world when he was a pro behind Leva, Rosewall, and Gonzalez. Him and Charlie Passarell, and so a lot of these guys yeah. like, were sort of this, you know, Mafia is probably not the right word, but they were like the, the big execs involved in a lot of the beginnings sure of, they were. of tennis. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah. And, and then after, after those two, then of course we had, we had Jimmy Connors, who was also from, from St. Louis. Actually, East St. Louis, but he played all the tennis in St. Louis. I used to play with his mother growing up every single Sunday, and he would play against my father. Do you have an interesting relationship with Jimmy? Um, I have a long history with Jimmy. Um, we played golf a couple of years ago, and I've I've known him forever. And um, and you have a win over him. I have one win over him out of out of five losses. Yes, I do. You were one in five. Yes. Where did you beat him? Once at the Canadian Open in Montreal. What year was that? Uh, I think it was 1980. And what was ironic about it is that uh, I was going to be defaulted from that match because I was in a taxi and it was in the days before cell phones and I was in traffic and my match was on. It's like I left the hotel too late, there was too much traffic, I didn't know, you know, Montreal. So I told the taxi cab driver, I said, pull around the back of the stadium, there's a short fence, I'll jump over the fence. So I grabbed my racket, jumped over the fence, ran onto the court, he's waiting there for me. And I had, I had no time to be nervous and I, and I had so much adrenaline, I got out to a hot start and I just, and I just stayed on it the whole time. Score? It was like three and four. You beat Jimmy Connors three and four. You, yeah. you jumped a fence to get to the match. Yeah. Well, what racket were you playing with at that I time? I was playing with a Prince Woody. Really? Yes. And were you a Takini player? Yes, I was. Takini contract. Love Sergio Takini clothes, yeah, sure. Wait, well, let's go back. So, yeah. so uh, you came up in, in St. Louis, and someone told me that you practiced in the winter on, on carpet, or, or I've, you had like some facilities that gave you an interesting yeah. opportunity to hone your game um, in a unique yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you about it. In St. Louis back in the 60s and early 70s, we didn't have any indoor courts. As a matter of fact, there weren't that many indoor courts around the country at the time. So we would play in the, in the National Guard Armory indoors and so it was really a wood floor just like a basketball floor with five courts in a row so I'd go down there every day or every every other day after after school and um, I'd be I'd be waiting for a court and and playing in front of me would be all these great nationally ranked players men and women like who Jimmy Connors Jimmy Parker uh, you know Marianne Eisel I mean these were all women and guys who ranked in the top ten in the nation 
So I never really saw bad tennis growing up. Mm. So I figured, well, that's just, that's just how you play tennis, just like these people here. You know, I was 10 or 11 years old. You were a top junior? I, I was in the top five pretty much in every age division except for the 14. In yeah. the country? In the country, yeah. You, and you traveled? I traveled a lot. I played every, every division, I mean, every, every section. Do you graduate high school? Sure. Yeah. So you went, to, I went to a tough high school, yeah. Did you play for the high school team? Uh, I played the occasional match for the high school team, yes. They just brought you in to They brought somebody. me in as, as, as a ringer if it was a tough team, yeah. And I'm sure every coach complained. And, and oh, yeah, he's not, really on the, he's not really on the team all the time. He's not... He's, he's a not, ringer, this guy's... Not, <laughs> he's not legal to play, all that kind of stuff. Sure, I heard that. But um, do you play like things like the Orange Bowl and, and Junior I played Wimbledon? The, I played the Orange Bowl. Junior Wimbledon uh, at the time was really only allotted for, I think, the top one or two players per country. So, I mean, it wasn't really a fair contest then. It wasn't really a thing. No, we're, no it, it wasn't a thing. You Did, traveled inside America, in the United States. Yeah, the Orange Bowl was, was, was a thing, but yet Kalamazoo and all the national events were, yeah. Um, and you won Kalamazoo? Uh, I won the, won the doubles in Kalamazoo twice, 16s and 18s, and I, I, I didn't win the singles. Billy Martin won all the singles in those days, my, and he was my doubles partner. And then you moved to L.A. for your senior year of high school, is that right? I did. I moved here, yes. What was the impetus for that? Because all those people I was talking about in St. Louis had all moved, and, and we're, all, we're, all, we're all playing the tour. So there was really no one left for me to practice with in St. Louis by the time I was 17. Uh, you know, Connors moved out here for his tennis and a lot of people were doing that. And so my father asked me if I wanted to come out here and I was lucky enough to take him up on it, yeah. And from that moment on, you are an LA resident. You're an LA, Southern California. LA kid, my own little studio apartment in Westwood uh, when I was a senior. You, got, wait, hold on, you, you lived alone as a senior I in lived school? alone as a senior in high school out here, yes. I got out of school at 12.30 every day and decided whether I wanted to practice with the UCLA team, which you could do in those days. So I'd just go over there and practice with UCLA. And, and the who rest was on that team then? Oh God, I mean like uh, guys like Brian Teacher. Brian Teacher won the Australian Open, uh, go on. I think, I think the Cornell brothers were there, the Crises were on the team. So, I mean, they were in the top one or two in the country, yeah. So that's, and that, so you, you had to have improved. Oh, I mean, listen, had I stayed in St. Louis, no way I would have improved as much. But, you know, but here, coming out here, losing to all these college guys when I was 17 helped, helped my tennis. Did you have your eyes set on playing pro tennis? Was that, was that in your mind? You, you know what, in those days, we didn't, we didn't think that much about playing pro tennis because there wasn't that much money in it. But there was this sort of common drive to just, just become as good as you could possibly be and just see how far you could take it. Yeah, it was a pride thing. And so you made a decision in, with college that was interesting. You played a year. I did. Um, I thought I was going to go to UCLA. And I talked to the coaches at UCLA and at USC and at, and at, and at Cal. And I just, I just fell in love with the Bay Area. And I figured that if I could play one or two for Cal, that I could play against the number one player from all the other top colleges and maybe sneak in a couple, uh, a couple wins. Whereas I felt that the coach at UCLA already mentally had me slotted in two, three, four, five, somewhere there. So I didn't feel like I had a shot to prove myself. So you played one at Cal? I did. What year was that? I loved it. This was, must have been 73, 74. I snuck in a win over, over Brian Teacher then. Um, I had a couple other wins over some, some of the top guys in the country. So, so it kind of springboarded me you know, into the next level, yeah. So, what, so how do you not go back to college and just start playing pro tennis? Like, how does that happen? 
Well, there was actually a small circuit in the fall that I'd heard about over and over in England and Scotland. And since I wasn't exactly knocking the books over too much at college. You're having a lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of fun in those days. Playing number one for Cal Berkeley. Yeah. <laughs> I so, mean, come on, uh, man. I, I asked my father, I said, hey, I said, if I can get in these tournaments over there, I said, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn pro and just give it a shot. And pull out of school. And pull out of school early. Most guys stayed, stayed, stayed for two years of college, but I figured, well, I'm gonna, you know, I gotta get the jump on these guys and maybe go out a year early. So I did. And then what? And then it was a struggle and, and, I mean, you, and we, playing. We, we used 600 in the world and then you well, went to that, 300. You know what, there wasn't even rankings below, I don't know, 200, I, I don't think in those days. I don't, you know, I, I don't even know, but like I had to get a letter from, from this guy at Cal who was on the tennis tour and he wrote the guy over in Scotland said, this guy can play, can you give him a wild card into tournaments over there? And that's how it kind of starts. And I, and I had enough wins to kind of slowly build my ranking, yeah. And what would you say was your best year on tour? I would probably say 1980. Yeah, you were 25. I, a, I was 25, which I think is when most players probably play their best between 25 and, and 27, right in there. That's sure. kind of the sweet spot. At least in the old days they did. Maybe you're now like, they can go, you know, go on further. But you were like in the best shape of your life. In good shape. I felt a little bit more experienced. I, I was definitely better at 25 than I was at 21 or 22. For sure. Sure. Yeah. And uh, did you make any money? Like I couldn't even find your. You know what? Most of the guys I could find their uh, their earnings. No, they, they. You know what? They weren't even keeping keeping track of the money in those days that much. I mean, uh, you know, I made enough to break even those first couple of years. Maybe have a little extra spending money for my apartment and all that stuff. And, but, um, you know, the year that I got ranked forty or forty one actually, um, I I think I think I only made like. Ninety-five thousand. So, kidding. you know, after expenses and stuff, there's not, you know, there's not that much there. But ninety-five grand back then is probably what one sixty. You know, it's probably yeah, like, you're least. like living nicely. I'm it, living okay. okay. I'm living okay in LA. You know, I'm spending too much on sort of food and clothes. But unless you're in the top ten, you know, you're not really making that much money. So you're really doing it because you can afford to do it barely. Yeah, and you're good. Um, at it. You know, uh, you beat McEnroe that year as well. Is that right? I, I got. John that year too. So Jimmy and John that year, yeah. Where'd you play John? Um, uh, actually, I got him twice. I think I think that year, I beat him in Memphis at the National Indoors. You beat him twice that year? Were you about uh, to say? I I think I beat him twice that year because I beat him in Vegas. Although you know maybe maybe that was a couple years. Late. You know, I, it's all kind of hazy. I'm sold. I I I actually forgot the years now. But you have a couple of W's over John. I do. Yeah. Um, when you played these top guys, did you? feel like you elevated your... I actually did. For some reason, that whole nothing to lose mentality helped me a lot. Against guys who I was close with ranking-wise, it was tough. I mean, I didn't feel like I had an edge over them at all, and I didn't really know their game as well. You know, when you see McEnroe or Connors or Borg play every week, you know, you know, you kind of have a sense of what they like to do. So my strength was sort of being accurate and pinpointing, so I felt I could kind of get around some of their uh, strengths. Accurate and pinpointing. Yeah, I think so. Trey doesn't miss. That's what he means he doesn't miss and he hits a heavy flat ball and and has so much artistry to his game it was amazing is there any footage of any of this does it live does there footage i think of i think yeah i think i have uh, uh, a dvd of myself playing against lendl at wimbledon 
Okay, well, I think, you know, we need to talk about your Wimbledon. I, I consider everything else a lot more interesting personally, but you famously wore the throwback outfit, the linen pants with the linen shirt and the the tie around the waist at Wimbledon. You played in that outfit. What was the, What's the story behind that? I grew up reading World Tennis Magazine religiously. And it was really the Bible uh, of, of uh, tennis in those days. My dad collected every world tennis from back in the 1940s. And so I'd see pictures of the old players playing, uh, you know, in long pants and stylish. And, it, and, you know, the whole thing seemed so, you know, so sort of, you know, romanticized that um, when I was on my last year of the tour, I said, I'm not going to win Wimbledon. It's my last year. Why don't I do something different? And so um, I decided when I was here in LA, prior to going over to Wimbledon, that I was gonna go look for some uh, long white cricket pants and uh, an old white cable knit sweater and, and like a button up white shirt. So you take the court in the first round of Wimbledon dressed like a guy from like 1862. Right, or at least 1922. 1922. Anyway, anyway um, I, so then I walk on the court uh, stands on the court. Yeah, Stan Smith, uh, you know, who most of you know as, as the shoe, is a person and a player who was a world number one. Yeah. So anyway, so here's Stan looking at me. He's won Wimbledon, US Open, everything else, and all the photographers are around me. So Stan says to me, hey, Trey, let's get this little, this little publicity stunt over with. And so I said, got it, Stan, okay. So I was breathing fire at that point, you know, so I was ready to go. Yeah. He was pissed. He's, he stoked the fire in me, yeah. He was a little bit... Yeah, he was pissed. He was pissed. Sure, because he's, you know, you know, Stan's the man. And, uh... Yeah. But you didn't mean it, uh, as a... You just wanted to no, do listen, something No, listen, it was my fun. last thing. Yeah. It was fun. Why not do it? You know, I mean, I like that old style anyway, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, and you got the W. Got the W. And then, luckily, I got to play Lentil on center court. Yeah, and, did you end, and did you end up doing any press? Was it, it became like I a real a, thing. I did a lot of press. I mean, I was interviewed. I, I, I used to get fan letters from, like, 80-year-old men <laughs> because of that. Yeah, it was funny. Um, and I got, you know, I was in Time Magazine with the outfit on. But, I mean, it, it, it really wasn't a publicity thing in those days that much. I mean, yeah, I knew I was going to get some, but I just wasn't thinking along those lines like they do now. It's just different. Right, right. Just you different. Weren't. No, no. You were just did something you wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, I know you were been in L.A. a long time. I mean, did you have a stylist? Did you did you consult with anyone on I this? didn't consult. I knew what the look was. H however, uh, when I got it all together over in London, uh, uh, the famous guy, and I can't think of his name now, um, he was like the haberdashery guy for the women. Uh, Ted Tingling. Tingling. He came up to me after my first round and he said, hey, you know, you know, you're missing your club tie as your belt. He said, why don't I take your pants and I'll sew some belt loops on there and I'll get you a Wimbledon tie to put around. Ted Tinling got involved in this. Yeah. That's amazing. Ted Tingling, um, I, I hope some of you know who he is. Uh, he was the designer of all the women's tennis clothing when the women's tour started for Billie Jean and for, for everyone. Rosie, for Rosie Casals. Yeah. He, he designed these ornate tennis dresses a legendary moment in time from a very famous guy, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah he, he was, really was. He was. He was a yeah. sort of, he was the tennis designer. He was the That's guy. That's cool. So he was he, the guy, yeah. So, so you beat Stan Smith in the first round of that outfit. Right. And it's, that had to have been Stan's last year. 
Uh, it was close to it, if not if not the last thing. You know, Stan, Stan was funny. You know, I, I actually was up 3-2 in the fifth, and he defaulted. Um, you played Lendl in this inning? Played Lendl in, in, in center court. I'm guessing Lendl just was... Uh, Lendl was, was, was kind of nervous about the whole thing, I think, because... Uh, he was kind of twitchy at the beginning, and he he, he didn't play well early on. Is so it I got true you went up like four love or something? I was up either three zero or three one or four one in the first set. Yeah, and uh, and I think he was a little shocked at, because I I started out, out out playing well too, and uh, but eventually he's he's just he's just too big for me. He's just he's just got too much heat everywhere. Yeah. Do you have a moment or a tournament that was your that is your best? Is there? A yeah. As, as a matter of fact, um, I didn't have a lot of a lot of tournament wins, but I had um, I had a, a really good tournament over and over in Vienna, Austria, one year, which was 1980, I think, and I got to the finals. Uh, I lost to Brian Gottfried in the finals. I beat Yannick Noah in the semis. Um, I beat Bob Lutz, I think, in the quarters, and I was just playing well that week. And actually, you know, coincidentally, that was the first week that after lunch every day I'd have a double espresso. It just seemed it just seemed to put me in the right frame of mind. Yeah. That's neat. I mean that, that's a good week. It was a good week for me, yeah. Vetus Garolitis? Oh yeah. A lot of stories. Very close with Vetus. You know, Vetus was six months older than I was. And um, he kind of came into the juniors towards the very end, but he was such a rock star and was getting better every week and everyone knew it. And he had this New York so you mentality. knew him from juniors? I knew him a little bit from juniors, sure. And since I played all over, I was back in New York a lot. And so I'd call him up and he'd, he'd invite me to stay over. And we'd practice at his house. And, and we'd go out in his, in his, in his Lamborghinis and his, and his Rolls Royces and, and go to the clubs. It was a lot of fun. So what's the story? I guess he probably was three in the world at some point. You yeah, know? I think he got to three in the world. I wanna, I'm going to guess at around 78. Seems about right. And he had some money, and he oh, was... he had he was making a lot of money. I remember his agent one time told me that if Vitas ever wins Wimbledon, that he's going to be the wealthiest athlete ever. Vitas was really a special. Yeah, he was the Pied Piper. I mean, every every night over in Europe, we'd be we'd go out with ten or ten or twenty people, strangers, and he would just pick up the tab, and we'd go to the best restaurants in Paris or Rome. That oh, was great. One time, yeah, did you ever go to Studio Fifty Four with him? Quite a bit, yes. You so how often? Quite a bit. Quite so, a bit. So when I was in New York, <laughs> he was such a famous person that we'd get in his rolls. He'd put the top down at night. We'd drive to 54, and as we pulled up, the doorman knew to let Vitas in. So you would see the crowd there sort of part as the guy would say, "Vitas, come on in," and and he he actually motioned Vitas in. Just so I would right just in. I would just follow him, and we would just go right on in. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable stuff. Yeah, it was great. Did you uh, have any relationship with Borg? I, uh, Borg was quiet. Borg was sort of, um, kind of, sort of, how do I say this? Following Vetus around a lot. You know, Borg didn't really know how to kind of live, live life like Vetus did. Actually, none of us did. So Borg kind of sort of hitched his wagon to, to Vetus off the court. You know, I mean, I, I, I really wasn't around when he was doing that because I didn't like the entourage that Vitas had that much. Yeah. Probably not very good for your tennis. It wasn't good for my tennis, and also it's like everyone was following Vitas everywhere at that point, and I just, I bailed out a long time before that, you know. Yeah, and, and ultimately, as we know the story, Vitas, you know, ended up having some drug problems and some things, and, and he sort of burned out. <laughs> yeah, he did. I mean, he... He had so much energy, and I mean, he, he, he was just, 
he, I mean, he'd actually practice for six hours and then go out all night and, and then get up in the morning and do it again every day. Oh, is that right? Like he yeah. Was, and he'd get up and I remember we would, I mean, I'd be getting up to it at the same time and he'd be straggling in and, and you know, he'd have a piece of cake and a Coke for breakfast and then he'd like go out and practice for six hours. Practice so I'd, for I'd six pra hours? I'd, I'd practice for an hour and a half. That was it. Six hours. Yeah, I mean, he played me a set, or and then Borg a set, and and he played with with like Harry Hopman, who was the famous coach from Australia, yeah, of course, and drill, and he just that's what he did. That's something we don't hear about. You know, there always used to be these stories of Borg, and and I do recall, you know, the stories of Vetus that they have these long, long practice sessions. Yeah. You don't hear about that anymore. People don't no. train like that. I mean, that. I, I, I don't know why they did it. I guess they just felt that, that if they practiced harder that they were supposed to be one or two in the world. I mean, maybe, obviously it worked. Um, ish. Ish, sort of, yeah, yeah, but it did. But it wasn't for me, no. Um, so at some point you sort of identified a poisonous situation. Uh. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I had, I had to live, you know, I mean, I had, I, I had to do things how I could do it. I mean, I wasn't going to practice for six hours. I mean, my body couldn't take it anyway. Well, or go to nightclubs <laughs> and party your, yeah, exactly. your brains out. For, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then what happened? You know, how did you, well, how did you finish? Well, uh, <clears throat> in those days, usually uh, the end of your career was sort of you know, you know, made for you because I, I remember, like, I was I was playing worse and worse. My knees were getting worse and worse. My ranking was dropping. My money was dropping. So I'm I'm 28, 29, and I figured, you know what? I'm not going to go back in the qualifying at this point. I'm too beat up. I've played my whole life. Um, it's over, right? So you have to sort of pull up your boots and say, I got to find something else to do. So 19 to 29 is you. Yeah, that's in me. In pro tennis. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. And so I remember at the time, my good friend who I played on the tour with, Jeff Austin, Tracy's brother, was an agent, and he had just found this, this shoe company called, called Reebok. And they were making aerobic shoes. They were super soft, and they were just they coming were out making, with- Making, well, yeah. the first Reeboks, you know, they were a Massachusetts company, I recall, or like yes, from they England were. maybe, but, but they had, they were making it with, with, with glove leather. Glove leather, super soft leather, right? Glove leather. So everybody was wearing the, the Reebok aerobic shoes at that time. And, and Jeff, my friend, said, um, they're coming out with a tennis shoe. I said, well, who's their tennis guy? And he goes, they don't have one. I said, well, get me in there. I mean, let's, let's, let's talk to him. Right, let's rock I'll and be roll. their tennis guy. I'll move to Boston, sure. So he, he got me an interview with them. I flew back there. I talked with the president, Paul Fireman, and uh, he hired me, I, and I moved back to Boston for two years. And did what? I was, first, I, well, I was, a, I was a combination promotions manager and um, marketing research guy for the shoes, but I didn't really know any, anything about shoes at right. the time. I just knew a lot of people in the tennis world. So over time, I learned more about the shoes and all that stuff. Uh, and I started doing a lot, of, a lot of promotions for the brand new tennis players coming up. But did you um, sign players? I signed players. I signed Flack and Seguso, Hanna Monlakova. Flack and Seguso, one of the great doubles teams uh, there ever was. Were they the first guys to wear the clothes? They were the first guys to wear the clothes because when the, because I knew Ken Flack growing up from St. Louis, another St. Louis guy. Ken Flack, I didn't realize that. Yes, yeah. and um, so I went to the president and I said, look, Flack and Seguso are winning all these, all these minor doubles tournaments on the tour. And I had just stopped. And so I said, if we sign them, I said, let's just give them a big bonus. I said, no one's ever done a doubles contract before. I said, let me sign them as a team. 
and he said, well, who are these guys, and are you yeah, sure, right. and I, I don't know, and, I, and so he did, and he gave them a huge bonus if they did well, right? At the end of that year, they won the world championships, and they were one in the world. And then, I mean, I looked like a genius after that because they just were in Reebok everywhere. Everyone saw Reeboks, so it was a good thing. And who else? Uh, Michael Chang. You signed Chang. Sang Chang. I Michael Chang, you know, to me is like the most notable Reebok player. He won the French in Reebok. Yes, didn't he, he did. Yes, he did. So you signed him in advance of that. Yes, I did. Yeah, that's big. And did he wear Reebok his whole career? I think he might have. He, I think he did. As a matter of fact, yeah, it's a long career. Yeah. And um, Andy Roddick. I mean, you had to have stopped working, but Andy Roddick wore Reebok at some point. Um, and Reebok now are they out of tennis? I, it, it, I, I never see them. I, I have no idea, but probably they are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So after that, after that work. Where did you where did you land? I didn't stay in Boston, uh, but I came out to LA and I opened up a West Coast office for them out here in Westwood, and I stayed there another year, and then they decided to close the West Coast office, and so I had to look for something else to do, and that's when I discovered the whole world world of coffee. I had been to Seattle and I walked into this into this Pete's office up there. And I was talking to this guy and he said, you know, he said, Starbucks is gonna open up 20 stores in Los Angeles next year. And I said, oh gosh, I better jump on this real soon. So I opened up an espresso bar that was called a Rosto Coffee. So then I also opened up a roasting company. I learned how to roast, I trained roasters. Uh, I then got, I got, I got bought out by someone else. And then we opened up 10 more stores of my Rosto Coffee. And then you found your way back to tennis. After that, I found my way back to tennis. I had some friends over at the LA Tennis Club here. And uh, I got a call and they said, hey, um, would you be interested in maybe running the, running the LA Tennis Club? And I said, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So I went over there, met with the board of directors and they, and they signed me and I, I was a gym over there for four years. The LA Tennis Club is a exclusive, from what I understand, that's a real deal club here in LA. When I was growing up, all the top players in the world would play there. I mean, you could go there and see Pancho Gonzalez or, or Jack Kramer or Alex Almeida. I mean, all these famous players would just hang out there and play tennis there. That was a real players that club. That was a players club. And that's where they had the second biggest tournament in the U.S. after the U.S. Open was the Pacific Southwest here at that club. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. But you've done a lot of stuff. Done a lot of stuff. You've lived a very full... Uh, yeah, I think you got to cut the tennis umbilical. I, I, I think when you stop... I think it's important to, to do something else. I said, you know, I mean, I, I see so many guys just go from playing into, into coaching. If you don't change careers by the time you're 35 after tennis, then you're, you know, you're going to be teaching pretty much your whole life. A lot, of, a lot of them have. A lot of them enjoy it. That's great. But I didn't see myself doing that at all. Okay, this is our fourth set. We call this the 10 ball scramble. Okay. Um, it's, we don't do a deep dive. It's word association. I'm gonna say something. All right. And you just say what you think. Got it. Favorite serve? Federer. Why? Because I think he's super accurate with it and it looks great. Favorite backhand? Uh, Walrinka. Why? Uh, I've never seen anyone with that much power on the backhand one-handed ever. With, by the way, I 
I used to copy Ken Rosewall's back end, so I, I have to say Ken Rosewall also. Right, Ken Rosewall had a famous, gorgeous, like sort of flattish. A flat slice, a, as we talked about a earlier. A flat slice. Yeah, so I used to stand in front of a mirror with, with, with some photographs of Ken, and I would try and put my body in that same position when I was, when I was 10 years old. I said, because you know, he must be feeling this at this point in the swing. So I just tried to model my backhand after that. Yeah, and yeah. your backhand is unique and amazing. Uh, favorite forehand? Um, probably that guy Gonzalez who who quit a few years ago. I forget his first name now. Um, Fernando Gonzalez. Yeah. Yeah. I used to just sit there with my mouth agog because the guy could hit that thing. He could slap that forehand. I mean, it just was shocking. Favorite city? Rome. Me too. Favorite tournament? Rome and the San Francisco tournament that Barry McKay used to run. Why? Because it, w it was so much about the players and Barry was a great player and he understood what those tournaments could be. Favorite court? Gosh, probably center court of the Los Angeles Tennis Club. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I love that court. Best coffee, favorite coffee? La Colombe is first and Blue Bottle second. You like Blue Bottle? I do a lot. Um, you like their espresso bean? I love their espresso bean. See, because I think the La Colombe, the Nizza, that Nizza bean is my favorite. Yeah, it's a, it's, it has like a little more caffeine and it's a little, a little stronger tasting. Yeah, I handle that amount of caffeine fairly well, and other and the <laughs> the blue bottle I don't handle as well. I don't think it's a little more acidic, maybe. Maybe maybe a little bit. Maybe. Yeah. Ken Rosewall, my idol, um, you know, missed thirteen of his best years um, of playing the majors. He did. He did. Because he was a pro at the time. So he so, didn't play the slams? No. He, he still won eight slams, but he missed whatever 13 times four is. He missed that many slams. 52 he missed. Yeah. Um, Ely Nastasi. Um, loved watching him play in, uh, on clay. Loved it. He would, he would actually walk forward during the point and hit mid-court shots. It was, just, it was just genius. It was great. Um, do you know him well? Uh, I, I used to know him a little bit, yeah. I, I wouldn't say well, but I've, I played him a couple you times. You played him? I did. How'd you do with him? I, I, well, actually, I, I beat him here at UCLA, indoors. Yeah. That's a nice win. Yeah, it was a nice win. Uh, where'd you lose to him? Uh, I lost to him once on the Reardon circuit, which was the, which was the other circuit other than the ATP circuit back in the old days. The Reardon circuit? Bill Reardon, Bill Reardon was Jimmy Connors' manager. Oh, right. It's spelled and, like Ryordan. Yes. R-I-O-R-D-A-N, right? Yes, and yeah. his brother was the, was the mayor of Los Angeles. And he had a circuit back in the early 70s that Connors and Nastasi played on. And I played, played a, few, uh, a few tournaments there. Uh, Borg? Um, burnt out. Vetus. Oh God, a, a, a true legend. You miss him. Yeah. Everyone misses Vetus. Yeah, I miss him. Moving on to our fifth and final set. Um, we call this our king of the court. If you were the king, how would you do it? Um, as I said earlier on, I, I feel like you come from this moment of time in tennis. It was like the beginnings of, of modern tennis. Yeah. Yeah, you guys were switching from wood rackets to graphite and, and such right at that moment. You know, the clothing was becoming famous, right? There was Takini and Fila and, and Alesse. And, yeah. You know, you come from this moment of time that I think we all sort of romanticize. So now if you were the king and there was a time machine, 
and you could go, we call it maybe like back to the future. What would you take from then and bring to now? You know, I was, uh, I was going to go to a different place with that. I was going to go with like how tennis should be played now as far as, as far as the rules and as far as the, the, you know, lines and all that kind of stuff. Fine. So, yeah, no, so he, here's what I was thinking. I was thinking that now you see guys who are 6'6", 6'8", 6'10", 7 feet tall, right? And I think that that is an unfair advantage considering how high the net is, right? And I think that uh, in the future, we're going to see tons more tall guys than we do now. And I think the game is just going to get taller and taller. So if you're not tall, I think it's going to really be tough to play this game professionally. So I, I was thinking that if you're over a certain height, like, like I'm going to say 6'1", that there's a, there's, there are a, a couple lines behind the baseline that you have to serve from. And I think what that would do is that, is that, that would even out the tennis for all, all different size, size people. Yeah, I've never heard this, but this is a very revolutionary because thought. Look, because look. Back up yeah. the taller guys yeah. on the surface. Whether it's you know, six inches, a foot, whatever. You know, someone's got to figure it out mathematically what, what, the, what the difference is angle-wise. The trajectory. Because, yeah, because I, listen, I'd like to serve. I mean, you know, if I serve from a net that was like a foot tall, that must be what Isner feels like, serving from a net that's three feet tall. 100%. So, so I'd like to make that, that part even in tennis, the surf. Yeah. You'd like to sort out that that's a that's a that's a radical <laughs> that's a radical change. But like what do you like, I guess I guess what I want to know is what do you miss um, or is it best not to look back? You know, you know what? No 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 I mean I like I like to look at it all. Um I I, um, I don't miss the super long tennis matches. I don't think that there's any need for matches to go on past six or eight all in the fifth set. I think it's a waste of everyone's time. Um, I probably would also have the majors play two out of three sets until the quarters. And then I would go three out of five from there. And what about socially? Like I said it earlier, it says like, I feel like you guys made less money and had more fun. Is there a way to sort of loosen up these guys? Is there a way to... How can you make guys have more fun? I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's just the society we live in right now. You know, I mean, we didn't have... Coaches travel with us. You know, a, a we couldn't afford it. B only only Borg did that. So uh, it's just a different time. And I, I think I think I think both are great. Um, I'm sure these guys are having some fun too. By the way, it it may be a different kind of fun now, but it's just I'm sure they are. You know, how when you look back on your career, uh, how do you look back on it? Um, I look back on it like I didn't really have as many results as I I felt I could. Um, I think I left some on the table. I'm not sure why. I just, I don't know if I, I mean, I, I, I always felt like I could get into the top 25 if I was playing well, but I just wasn't, I wasn't consistent. Just wasn't. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I never saw myself as number one or number five in the world, you know, uh, but I, I did feel that I could, I could get into the top, top 25 if I was a little more consistent. I wasn't. Are there are there are there regrets? Is there anything you think you could have done different? Would you have practiced more? Oh, have... I don't know about practicing more. Um, I mean, I practiced a lot. I I, I did. Like I mean, I played my whole. It, I played my whole life. Man, I mean, five foot I don't know. Eight, yeah, eight. yeah. On a you good day, you got a lot of. You got a lot of. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I. You've had a great life in tennis, man. I yeah, mean, yeah, incredible. I have. I mean, I had a good a good junior life and a lot of fun and 
nine years on the tour. So yeah, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not complaining. Believe me, I just felt I could have been a little more consistent. We all probably have a little more consistency in us somewhere. <laughs> who knows where? Who knows? You know, like, you know, when when Trey talks about not being consistent, like that's like hilarious because if you ever watch him hit balls, I mean, he literally doesn't miss. Um, listen, thank you very much. Uh, think this is it for us from uh, Genghis Cohen on uh, Fairfax Avenue. Thank you, Craig. Really, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. And you are released. Yeah. Okay. Huge thank you to Trey Walkie. He's had an incredible life in tennis. Uh, you know, sometimes your career doesn't always go the way you thought. But um, hey, man, for those of us that uh, struggle to, you know, hit a topspin backhand consistently, and what he's done is is just remarkable. Want to say a big thanks to Mark and Ned and everyone at Genghis Cohen. Our producer is Scott Tuft. Our music is by Brian Senti. The masterful Matt Degnan did our mix. I want to thank everyone for listening. We will be back soon with lots more tennis talk with the most interesting people in the sport. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review us on the Apple Podcast site and tell your friends. Thank you for listening. And until next time, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.